Hello everybody, we're back in Tensor Voices. I am Eliana Duarte and we're here today with Thomas Kalle and Paul Breiding, who is our guest today. Hi Paul. Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me. So we just um, before starting this recording, we discussed that we ask everybody what a tensor is. So maybe Paul, you can uh, you can first introduce yourself, or you can answer the question what a tensor is. Uh, you can choose your own order. Okay, let me first introduce myself. So my name is Paul Breiding, as Eliana already mentioned, and uh, currently I'm still a substitute professor for computer algebra in Kassel. But this time will end next week, and starting with April, I will become an Eminuta Research Group leader at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, where I will establish my own research group. And uh, part of the research in this group is actually based on tensors, so this uh, is a perfect opportunity for me to speak a bit about what we're doing and what are our perspectives on these um, things. Now, what is a tensor? So for me, there is no final answer to that. So um, for me, it depends who asked this question. So there are uh, different views on the definition of a tensor. And depending on who I'm talking to, my answer is different. But let me give an answer maybe, which is, I think, the most intuitive answer to this uh, question. And this answer is just that tensors are higher dimensional matrices. So a matrix is just an area of numbers arranged in two dimensions. Okay, so columns and rows. So a matrix has entries, let's say a matrix A has entries A, I, J, so they are sorted into two dimensions, I and J. And the tensor is then just a, an array which has more than just two indices. So for instance, at three-dimensional tensors, A has, in, has uh, indices I, J, and K. So it's, a, it's an array with indices I, J, and K, so three dimensions. And you can also have four dimensions, five dimensions, n dimensions, and that's a, that's a tensor for me. So just a way of arranging numbers into dimensions. Well, what's so fancy about this? How, how, what, what kind of research can you do about arrays of numbers? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> this is a good question, but uh, I think the answer about for this question you already learned in linear algebra, right? So what's so special about major sheets? They're just... Uh, Areas of numbers, so what's so special about this? And we learn a lot of things. The thing is that when you pass from two dimensions, so matrices, to tensors, so more than, uh, so at least three dimensions, a lot of strange things happen. But I think these things are just strange because all of us, we are just trained on um, working with matrices. Whereas actually, matrices are the strange object compared to tensors. So matrices compare very differently or behave very differently to tensors uh, in many aspects. And what's so special about them? There are, yeah, what's, there's a lot, of, a lot of answers to this question. I think you have to be a bit more specific about this. So in uh, another episode, we had this uh, topic that there's some uh, there's some bad behavior occurs for tensors that doesn't uh, occur for matrices. But I understand you correctly that you say some bad behavior occurs for matrices that, that doesn't occur for tensors. No, it mean bad is just uh, interesting. We, we also mean, agree. That. Let's call it interesting <laughs> because bad is in the eye of the viewer, right? So that's what that's what I said when I said oh, that's what I meant when I said. Um, Matrices are actually the special case. So for matrices, a lot of things uh, work well, which do not work so well for tensors. So let's talk, for instance, about the rank. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I think this is something which is 
very prominent in contemporary research about tensors is the rank. And for major sheets, there are a lot of different definitions of rank, and all of them are equivalent. So, for instance, the rank of a matrix is the minimum number of uh, rank 1 matrices, such that if you sum them, you get the matrix, that's the rank. But it's also the dimension of the image, or it's also um, the small, the, the, um, it's, it's the co-dimension of the kernel also, right? So that's also definition for the rank. And all of these all of these definitions agree for matrices. But for tensors, you can make all of these definitions, and some of them you can't even make, but they are still they're all different. So mm. there are plenty of definitions of rank, and uh, they're all different, and they all have to be studied, and um, because we do not understand very well what are their properties. So that's so strange about tensors. But actually, matrices are strange because all of these definitions coincide for matrices, which is weird if you think about it. It's a weird coincidence that <laughs> <laughs> that you have all these uh, equivalent notions. And eigenvalues. I'm, uh, I'm puzzled by, um, by eigenvalues uh, of matrices. Yeah, so for instance, one thing that is really intriguing about matrices is that eigenvalues of symmetric matrices, they are all real. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the proof of this fact, it's a one-line proof using uh, inner products. Mm -hmm. It's weird. And if you think about it, it's, uh, it's a miracle that this is true and this <laughs> proof is so simple. But what is Because not a one-line proof is that uh, that's uh, diagonalizable. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's more substantial. I mean, the, the, that's just conjugation. Uh, the one-line proof is just any eigenvalue that uh, uh, any complex eigenvalue is actually real. That's true. Uh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But this is what I'm what I meant. So this, but it's a miracle. Why should this be true? There's no. Um, so for me, there's no intuitive reason for that. Mm. But if you go to okay. tensors, first of all, there's no, no single definition of eigenvalues for tensors. There are plenty of definitions. So I know at least five. Mm. And for all of them, you can uh, consider symmetric tensors. So by which I mean tensors. Let's say, let's think about three-dimensional tensors. So so tensors indexed by uh, indices i, j, and k. And then symmetric tensors are tensors for which the entries are invariant under any permutation of the indices. Okay, So a, i, j, k is the same as a, j, i, k is the same as a, k, i, j, and so on and so on. So these are symmetric tensors. And this permutation of indices is some sort of generalization of transposition, right? So for matrices, you have just uh, mm -hmm. one transposition. So that's what we call transposition of <laughs> matrices. <laughs> and then Uh, for tensors, you have, uh, a symmetric you have group. Uh, yeah. yeah, you have a larger symmetry group, so mm -hmm. S3, S4, and so on. Now, um, let's look at symmetric tensors. So, for symmetric tensors, not all of the eigenvalues are real. There can be complex eigenvalues, and there's uh, so for me, there's no reason why, why I mean, why should this be different than for matrices? But it's different. Even if the tensor has real entries and yes, yes. okay. It's uh, it's it's completely unclear. It, I mean, we know <laughs> it, and we can prove it. We even know that there exist symmetric tensors that have only real eigenvalues. But uh, from like, if you ask me, from the intuition, it's not clear why this should be true. So in the end, it might be because uh, the complex numbers are two-dimensional over the real numbers, and you have conjugation. As because it's actually a theorem about Hermitian matrices. And uh, so, so this transposition, that because there's only one transposition of matrices, it's, it's kind of aligned with there's one complex conjugation. And um, as soon as you have an S3 of indices, then, then where, where should you, the, the con it doesn't match with the conjugation. 
Yeah, but then you could also think about subgroups, uh, two elemental subgroups, but mm -hmm. it's still not uh, clear. It, it doesn't, yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So these are just a few examples of uh, different behavior, and there are plenty of things which are different. And studying these properties is a big part of contemporary research in modern algebraic geometry, at least modern applied algebraic geometry, I would say. So a lot of people study properties of rank, of eigenvalues, and uh, all of these things, which are so different compared to matrices, where we understand basically everything. Mm. And it's it's if you think about it, humanity knows at least since I don't know 100, 200 years everything about matrices, at least the basic stuff. About 200 matrices. years? You said 200 years. Wow. So let's say let's say well, let's say 100 years. <laughs> Linear algebra is I think settled for at least uh, 100 years, maybe plus minus x. Okay. Mm. And, to, and <laughs> I'm uh, not sure, but uh, okay, let's, let's okay. Go. This was a, maybe a bit bold <laughs> statement, but at least we 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 know where it's going. Yeah. Okay. So eigenvalues uh, uh, of matrices, for instance, rank. These things have been known for a long time. But for tensors, we still don't know much. It's intriguing for me that uh, there's such a big gap if you just pass from two-dimensional arrays to three-dimensional arrays and then and so on. Yeah. So, so in order to study all these properties that are unknown about tensors, what kind of techniques uh, do you use? Like, What's your favorite way of studying these kinds of problems? So uh, we were just talking about um, the current research about tensors that happens currently. My research is not so much into the algebraic geometry side of tensors. It's more the numerical and probabilistic side of tensors. I use methods from algebraic geometry in my research, but it's not centered in algebraic geometry. So I cannot answer this question properly. But what I can say... This what what I'm interested in is computing the things we talked about, the rank, the decomposition, the eigenvalues, with numerical methods, and the um, convergence and the numerical properties, the sensitivity, stability of these methods highly depends on objects which are algebraic varieties. So this means they are. It depends on on sets which are defined by algebraic equations, and this is because all the objects we just talked about all the um, definitions we just talked about they're defined by polynomial equations right eigenvalues are polynomial equation decomposition into a, a sum of rank one tensors is defined by polynomial equations all these things are defined by polynomial equations so algebraic geometry is the natural language for studying these objects also in view of numerical analysis so I would imagine that many people are familiar with, you know, classical numerical analysis, which won't necessarily be using the latest techniques in numerical algebraic geometry. So how can we like bring the two together or think of the two at the same time? Yeah, I think this is uh, this is not so clear today. So I think th this this. Um Establishing this connection or establishing a bridge between those two fields is uh, under current construction. <laughs> it's not finished. <laughs> but I think what we need to do to merge the two fields uh, even better than it is today is to establish a dictionary of, um, of translations between questions that both sides have. So I'm thinking especially again about the um, the Lorentz decomposition of tensors. So this is a is a problem which is highly relevant in uh, scientific computing. And it's also a problem which is highly relevant in 
uh, algebraic geometry, but from different perspectives. And there are many, many um, problems or many approaches which are similar, but which use different words. And translating these words might be a first step into merging the two fields. And also raising the awareness that the uh, protagonists in numerical analysis are actually algebraic varieties, so you should study them using algebraic geometry. But to me, it sounds like there is the cultural uh, difference. If you ask uh, a random mathematician uh, on the street, <laughs> uh, she would maybe say that numerics is about inexact objects, while algebraic geometry strives to uh, work with the well, the exact thing. I, I mean, often often it's about rational numbers, and there's this whole number theory part. And um, uh, yeah, what's the role of this inexactness? Yeah. So, for instance. What I'm studying in my research is what is called a condition number, and that's uh, this is a number which measure, which measures this kind of inexactness. So it's defined as follows. So let's say you want to solve a problem, and this problem is modeled by by computing some function. So for instance, in the the function takes as input a tensor and outputs an eigenvalue, or outputs a decomposition, or outputs something. Okay, you want to understand now if the input is is slightly perturbed. So if there's some inexactness in the input, what happens to the output? So is it still close to the actual output or is it completely off? Okay, this okay. is the, this is this is measured by the condition number. The condition number measures how far off is the output when I perturb the input. Okay. Okay, and turns out this uh, number is is uh so when it's when it's large this number then the the output is far off and if it's smallest number then the output is close to the actual output that you're interested in the um, the condition number is uh, larger the closer you are to to what is called the post locus okay so studying inexactness or how how um, crucial inexactness plays a role in your computation translates to how close are you to this ill-post locus. And turns out in many problems, at least in uh, in tensor decomposition and eigenvalues and whatnot, this ill-post locus is an algebraic variety. So it's defined by the vanishing of polynomial equations. It's, it is what it is. It is this object. And so studying this object, you can use, you can, uh, use methods from algebraic geometry. And uh, this is what I'm promoting, that you should do that. And you can find out some interesting things about it. I wonder, is do you think there's um, a proof that could be done using numerics? Um, so can can numerical methods um, provide us proofs in a way? Sometimes there are com computer algebra. People believe that computer algebra can do uh, proofs. I mean, you know, think back about a four color theorem or so, um, which but this relies on exact computation. Uh, but w w is there a role for numerics in proving things? Yes, absolutely. And um, this is done by, I mean, there are many ways you can do it. But the, if you ask me, the, the way that is probably suited best is what I would like to call a posteriori certification, which means you use a numeric method to compute something. And then... This is an inexact result, so you can so it's not a proof or anything. So let's say you want to you want to show that some sort of equation has a solution. You compute a solution using numeric methods, but it's not exact, so you don't know if it is an actual solution. But you can use this inexact solution in some uh, then in you can plug it into some exact computation that verifies that this is actually a true solution. 
And there are way, many ways to do this. So one way could be, okay, use this inexact solution. You you turn it into some uh, rational number because this will usually, usually be some floating point number. Floating point numbers are actually rational numbers. Use it into some computer algebra system and you get something. This would be a proof. But uh, another interesting approach is using interval arithmetic. So that is um, doing inexact arithmetic but with rounding which gives you exact results. And interval arithmetic is actually quite popular in some branches of mathematics and it's um, it's very elaborate I would say. But it's not, so not used so much in algebraic geometry and um, part of my research is also... Okay, let's not put it this way. Let's say I would like algebraic geometers to um, appreciate a bit more that these methods exist and I'm trying to promote this a little bit. Speaking of promotion, uh, I know that you're a big fan, user, and developer of this uh, Julia software. Uh, can you say a few things about uh, Julia? Is it the future of scientific computing? I, I know you're saying yes. <laughs> Give me the opportunity to say yes. I think, uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> and the, uh, the reason why I think this is true is because uh, of two reasons first of all julia is i think very comparable to matlab in syntax and how the user works with it but it's free so it has all the advantages of matlab matlab is great it's fantastic but it's also really expensive and julia is free i think this is a this is why it makes it so appealing and of course it's very very user friendly and very fast and um It's a good language to do scientific computing. Now, speaking of that package that you just mentioned, very recently we have implemented interval arithmetic-based method for such certification methods. So you can actually now do proofs with these numerical computation if you want. So is, uh, are all these methods uh, somehow based on getting a numerical computation so good that you are sure that Uh, the remaining error uh, cannot give like a substantial difference. So, so sometimes I, I know these algorithms from number theory. So you're computing something that you, you know from a theorem lies in a lattice. So you're doing a numerical approximation, but then if you, do, if you know like the width of the lattice, uh, at some point you know that, that what, what you, which lattice point uh, you're computing uh, because you're you have a guarantee that you're close enough to... Um, To something, and you know, there's only one lattice point there. Is it is it all uh, all numerical proofs based on this principle, or is there some substantially new idea that I didn't get yet? I think it's different. So, but it depends also on the question. So, let's talk again about this interval arithmetic. Yeah, so this is of course not new. It's uh, since the 60s or so. But the idea here is to say, okay. We do a computation and it's an inexact computation using floating point numbers, which means in every computation I need to round my result because floating point numbers depend on rounding, right? So you do so the computation, yes. then you round. Could that computation be a root of a polynomial, for instance? Or what? what yeah, for instance. Yeah, okay. I want to, maybe I want to find for instance, the root. But at, at the end of the day, the computer does uh, plus, minus, uh, times, and division. Uh -huh, okay. and, mm -hmm. and all of these operations, it does some rounding, okay? So that's what it does. And now, interval arithmetic is based on the following idea. You, you do so. The rounding process is is done in such a way that it rounds outwards from what you're actually computing, so that the the true solution must always be inside uh, inside an interval which which you compute. So, by which I mean, you take an interval, you com compute with the borders of that interval, 
And then in the next step, you process these, these boundaries, okay? Mm -hmm. And the rounding is done in such a way that the interval just increases but does not decrease. So then you can always be sure that the true solution that you're interested in is always inside. That's the idea of interval arithmetic. And that's one way of doing it. But it's it not the only way. It sounds like you would get like a bigger, <laughs> yeah, bigger How do you keep interval? the interval small? So like how you start with yeah. a very small interval. <laughs> <laughs> that's very. That's a very interesting question because that's that's actually the reason why interval arithmetic is not is not so popular in uh, scientific computing today because of exactly that problem, that if your computation is too complicated, the intervals will just accumulate so much that they are meaningless. Okay, so that they are so okay. big that it doesn't give you anything. Okay, that's that can that can happen, and this is why interval arithmetic is not so popular in many scientific uh, computation applications. But, and here's the thing, I think that in computations and algebraic geometry, problems are so small, when I, and when I say small, I mean small in the sense of they don't accumulate so many errors in this case, that okay. it can actually be used to uh, solve complicated problems. Because complications in algebraic geometry do not arise from um, having huge numbers or super complicated computations. Compli complication algebraic geometry rise from the sheer number of possible solutions. And that's a different uh, measure of complexity. Mm. So I think that's why interval arithmetic can actually be a success story in algebraic geometry, whereas let's say in in high dimensional PDEs, it's not a it's not a thing because these co these uh, these problems are too big and too complicated for interval arithmetic to be actually applicable but problems in algebraic geometry how many variables do we have usually 20 or so 20 variables 20 equations this is a big problem in algebraic geometry but it's ridiculously small in other applications so this is why i think this might be an interesting uh, contribution to the community here coming back to tensors is this um connected to tensors uh, in any way or just in general because uh, maybe if I want to compute some condition locus uh, for tensor it's defined by polynomials yeah I think tensors if you want to so the software we just talked about is for solving systems of polynomial equations but of course tensors are also uh, defined or the problems with tensors are also usually defined by systems of polynomial equations but they are too big for um, for current software to be solved. So these problems involve so many variables that you cannot solve them with actual software, not even numerically. So you have to do something else. So what we do with tensors to compute decompositions or to compute eigenvalues is usually that we rely on optimization methods mm -hmm. because they are capable of solving it, whereas methods from algebraic geometry, so methods that solve actual polynomial equations, they are not capable of doing it because these problems are too big. Still, we can study them using methods from algebraic geometry because they are defined by polynomial equations. So at the beginning, you mentioned that you will start your new group uh, at MPI in Leipzig and you will be studying some questions about tensors. So can you share with us a little bit of like this exciting thing? Yes. So one thing I would really like to study is what is called a block term decomposition of tensors. Okay. So that's okay. a specific type of, of uh, decompositions and it's defined as follows. So you take your, let's say A is a tensor, okay? 3D tensor, 4D tensor, whatever. Yes. And now 
you want to decompose it into a sum of simpler tensors. We just talked about rank 1 tensors. These are some specific type of simple tensors, but there are other ways of defining simple tensors. And I don't want to get into the uh, actual definition of the simple tensors for block time decomposition because it's a bit involved, but they are, you can think of it as some sort of low complexity um, tensor which I want to use in my decomposition. So for the expert, okay. if someone's listening, this would be a sum of Tucker decompositions. Okay, whatever this is. But it's if you don't know what it is, not so important. Think of it as a decomposition to a sum of simple terms, whatever simple means. Okay. Now, here's the here's the interesting story, is that for many um, tensors, me, or for many formats of tensors, which I mean the um, number of, of summons in the decomposition and the size of the dimensions. So, for instance, you, you can have a 2 by 2 by 2 tensor, by which I mean a tensor which has in one dimension length 2, in the other length 2, and in the third length 2, you can have 2, two by 2 by 3, or 4 by 4 by 5, or whatever. And for many of these um, formats, it's actually so that the decomposition of a tensor into, uh, into a block term decomposition is unique. Okay, so it has just okay. a single, uniquely defined decomposition in this way. And that's, uh, that's very good for application signal proce processing because it means if you have computed the decomposition, it is the only one because there's just one. Okay, so yes. this problem of computing decomposition is in a sense well posed here. Now, we know, so, um, by, and we, by which I mean the mathematics community, knows that block time decompositions are unique for a big variety of three-dimensional tensors. And my my conjecture is that this is also true for four-dimensional, five-dimensional, and so on tensors. And why did they not do it for these, these high-dimensional tensors, just for three-dimensional tensors? Because all of the proof that exists so far, they are based on linear algebra, and they are they can only be used for three-dimensional tensors. So these proofs use methods from linear algebra to prove something about three-dimensional tensors. Now, I, now I, uh, yeah, one step further. Now, <laughs> I am very certain that using methods from algebraic geometry, so nonlinear algebra, we can go further, four-dimensional, five-dimensional tensors. And okay. I'm, I'm very convinced by this because this uh, same story happened with another decomposition, the so-called canonical polyadic decomposition. For this, this is another one, okay, it's not so important what it is, but here's the same thing happened. One can prove for three-dimensional tensors that decompositions are unique using linear algebra, but one cannot do it go further and using methods from algebraic geometry, one can go further by using theorems about so-called secant varieties and, and these kind of things. So one can actually do something which is important for uh, signal processing, signal processing applications, using methods from algebraic geometry. And I want to use, I want to do this for uh, block term decompositions. Yeah, this is what I would like to would like to study in my group. Do you know uh, people from signal processing? Do 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 you uh, did did you ever get feedback uh, that uh, this is exciting to the communication? I mean, to the application areas or was this communication yes 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 absolutely so for in, so for instance the results that i was just talking about the uh, the results about um, uniqueness of decompositions they these are results which are really important to these people because they want to understand that if they compute something it's actually the true solution right because it's the only right. one and this is um 
this is very exciting for them because they cannot go further than three dimensions because they are limited to using these methods from linear algebra. Ah, so they don't even have a me method. So sometimes it's like this in mathematics that uh, you, the mathematicians at some point prove uh, that the solution is unique, uh, but uh, this was empirically observed. Uh, there's a method that approximates the solution and, and it's very reliable and used everywhere and uh, people just go on with their <laughs> yeah. lives uh, knowing that yeah. well, it is, uh, I always get the same <laughs> results. So yeah, be. yeah, no, th this is what, of course, these, these things no are computed. These, these things are computed and uh, no one cares if we don't know theoretically that they uh, have a unique composition. They just uh, do it. But it's still, it would be very good to know it, to have a proof that these decompositions are actually unique. That's right. I think we have discussed with everybody what do they think about the future of tensors. Maybe I can say something about this because I think what is the future of tensors is the is a higher integration of people in algebraic geometry and people uh, in signal processing or other applications. Um, by which I mean that both sides have problems and both sides have uh, solutions and often they can be fruitful for each other. And I think this kind of communication Uh, will become more and more relevant and uh, this will be the future of tensors. I have one related question. Yeah, so the, we, we had this discussion uh, with uh, Mateusz also. The, do you think that uh, people should strive to, find, strive to find a common language or just to understand each other? Is it um, important that we, that we speak the same language or is it more important that we all learn each other's languages? I think it's more important we learn each other's languages because for me, if I learn the language of another community, it helps me to under really understand their questions. And uh, mm. if we have more than one language, then we have more potential to create uh, interesting questions and to um, develop more um, mm. creativity, let's say. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'm really good convinced point. by that. Yeah. So the, the there's also... A cultural heritage kind of built into the language which uh, would be lost if you Absolutely. get rid of Absolutely. Language shapes uh, thoughts. Yeah. So that's uh, that's why. Okay, that's a very nice okay. uh, finishing word. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Paul. Uh, thank you so much, you. Paul. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, um, Looking forward for, to the recording or to the podcast.